One of the most difficult sections in the entire Torah comes at the outset of our Parsha, and that is the section of Eishas Yefas Toar, the beautiful captive non-Jewish woman who the Jewish soldier sees in battle and takes back to his home. Unlike what would undoubtedly happen in an ancient army, and probably still happens in many contemporary armies, where you would have had a one-time fling of kind of a sexual assault nature, and then the woman would be discarded, the Torah rather requires the man to bring this woman back to his house and to wait a month, during which time there will be a certain protocol, the details of which we'll get to in a few moments. And then, at the end, if he still wants to marry her, he converts her, she becomes a full-fledged Jew, and then he marries her, and then as husband and wife, of course, uh, they live a normal and full married life. Only after that month and that whole protocol can he marry her and be intimate with her. That is the section of the Torah known as Eishas Yefas Torah. And I'd like to share with you uh, two different approaches to this very difficult section of the Torah, that of Rashi on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Ramban. Rashi begins his comments by focusing on the statement in Chazal, in the Gemara, This whole Parsha is one of the very few and very rare examples where the Torah seems to have a concession to the baser instincts and urges of a man, of a person's Yetzirah. We know that pretty much the rest and most of the Torah is about Kedusha, Kedoshim to you, and about self-discipline and self-control and overcoming one's base urges. And yet here we have an example, perhaps there's a few others, but it's certainly a very rare phenomenon, where the Torah doesn't require us to resist or overcome our urges, rather makes a certain concession to them. True, it provides a framework, and it does elevate, but fundamentally, Rashi admits the obvious, that this is not what we would have expected, this is not fighting the Yetzirah, but in a certain sense making a concession to the Yetzirah. But given that entire outlook uh, on this, no surprise, Rashi basically thinks that since this is obviously so bidyevid and so not ideal, really all the protocol that the Torah describes in the subsequent psukim, it's all about hoping to dissuade the man from going through with this. So therefore, for example, when the Torah tells us in Pasuk Yudbet that you shave her head, so Rashi explains that you shave all of her hair so she looks ugly. You became attracted to her, that's why you brought her home. Now realize that she's not so attractive. Furthermore, the Torah says, And Rashi explains based on one of the opinions in the Medrash, it means let her nails grow long, but in a very wild, unkempt, unmanicured way to further make her look unattractive. The next Pasuk says she changes out of her clothes and puts something else on. And Rashi explains that previously she was wearing not only beautiful, but seductive clothing. And therefore, we have her put on something simple and less attractive. And then the Torah says she has to stay in the house of the man where she cries every day for a month uh, for her parents. And there again, Rashi explains that it has to be in her house and she's crying every day so that every day, day in and day out, the man, this soldier, sees this woman who used to look so beautiful, and now she's wearing simple clothing, her nails are unkept, her hair is shaved, and she's crying every day. The whole thing hopefully will be so unattractive that he'll be repulsed, and he'll change his mind, hopefully he won't want to marry her. Rashi concludes by saying that if, hopefully is the case, he doesn't marry her, he doesn't get to say, well, I'm not marrying you, but I'm going to keep you as a slave. Rather, he has to let her go free. No strings attached. So this is Rashi's overall approach. It's a tremendous compromise and concession to the Yetzir Hara, and therefore all of the details that are subsequently mentioned in the Torah are all about hopefully making this not happen, hopefully allowing the man to have second thoughts and to change his mind and not go through with it. Ramban has a different approach entirely uh, to the Parsha, and Ramban says that the key phrase is when the Torah says that she will cry for her parents. Says the Ramban, what's going on here is 
the Torah is encouraging her to mourn not only her parents, but her overall past life, her past culture, her past country, and even her past avodazar. We want her to be able to mourn it by way of psychologically closing the chapter, closing the door on that part of her life. He explains, says the Ramban, that all of these halachos that are mentioned in these psukim, they're all fitting into the pattern of nihuge avelus, ways of demonstrating and fulfilling mourning protocols. Shaving your head, plus he understands astat sipornea, according to a different opinion, which means she also has to cut her nails very short. These are all Ramban shows from other places in Tanakh. These are all actions of mourning. When she takes off her clothing, Ramban says as well, she changes into different big de'avelah, special mourning clothing. And when the Torah says she has to stay in the house, the focus is not that she should be unattractive, the way Rashi said, but rather she has to stay in the house, because every avel has to stay in the shiva house. In her case, it'll be for a whole month, a shloshim house. But that's the idea. It's not to make her unattractive, but it's to give her a whole framework for her to mourn her past life. Now, why should, be this, why should this be the case? Why are we trying to get her to mourn? So Rosh, Ramban explains, because if they end up getting married, if it would be without this, if she would just be taken off the battlefield, right to the mikvah, thrust into the mikvah and converted, that would clearly not be a sincere conversion. That's a geris ba'al karcha. And therefore, we're doing everything we can, not just to help her mourn, but to help her come to grips with the fact that her old life has ended, and she can start a new chapter in her life. We want her to be able to confront and to process in a healthy way, but hopefully in a way that's full-hearted, in a leif shalem, that she can, so to speak, say goodbye to her past life, including, says Ramban, her past devoted Zara, and therefore more fully accept the possibility of being a Jewish wife to this hopefully nice Jewish man, and accepting Judaism more wholeheartedly. All of the halachos in that waiting period of a month, says Ramban, are in order for that to happen. Because if he marries her at any point sooner than that, and without this process going forward, it's un- unclear and really unlikely that her conversion would be sincere, or that she would really be believed shalem living with him as man and wife. And says Ramban, it's certainly not appropriate to be with a woman who doesn't really want to be with you, who's still thinking of her past life, and it's certainly not appropriate to marry someone or convert someone who's not fully and wholeheartedly and sincerely converting. And therefore, although Ramban agrees with Rashi that ideally this shouldn't happen, that I think they both agree, but the fundamental problem that the various details in the halachos that the psukim are describing, that these various halachos, these details, the fundamental problem that it's coming to solve seems to be different. According to Rashi, the goal is to make her unattractive so that he won't want to marry her, and according to the Ramban, it's to help her more fully come to grips with marrying him and converting so that in case he does decide to marry her, it'll be a more appropriate conversion and a more healthy marriage. At the beginning of our Parsha, in fact, the last few psukim of the first Aliyah, we confront one of the more shocking and difficult sections in the entire Torah, and that is the Ben Sorer Umoreh, the rebellious and disobedient child. The Torah describes uh, this shocking phenomenon in which a child, a young teenager, steals from his parents and uses that money to buy meat and wine and ravenously uh, eats the meat and guzzles the wine, and it gets so bad that his parents then bring him to the Beisdin. They testify about his rebellious behavior, and seeing that there is no hope for a better future, the Torah describes the shocking conclusion of this episode in which the community, the Bezdin, the whole community, stone the child to death in order to cleanse the community of this evil, and to make sure that a message is sent out to the entire community far and near 
that this is not behavior that we would ever uh, encounter and to warn parents, presumably to hopefully do better with their own children. As I said, this is really a painful, shocking, and some might even say troubling uh, section in the Torah. And it's not a surprise, therefore, that the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin on Daf Ayin Aleph tells us regarding this Ben Sor Amora, that never was, that never will be a Ben Sor Amora. It's comforting on the one hand, because the Parsha itself is so difficult. On the other hand, it begs the question, well, if there never was and never will be a Ben Sorer Amore, why do we have a section in the Torah devoted to it? To which the Gemara itself answers, that it's in order to pro- provide us an opportunity of more material to learn and therefore receive reward. Now, certainly on a simple level, this could be understood, and I think this is true, that the more Psukim you have in our Parsha, the more Dapim you have in the Gemara, Masecha Sanhedrin has pages of Gemara that deals with this section, that's more opportunities for Torah study, which means more opportunities for reward. However, in a brilliant insight, Rav Shimshin Rafal Hirsch suggests that there's actually a much deeper message. That if you want to know what there is drosh, what should we study so that we can be makabal schar, really what it's telling us is we can learn from all the mistakes that must have taken place in the Ben Sora and we can kind of reverse engineer and say, well, let's learn from this tragedy what was done wrong there, so we can learn what is what we can do right. How can we be a better parent? We can learn from the failures of the Ben Sora Mora. In other words, as Rav Hirsch, the Psukim here are in themselves a rich source of pedagogic truths and teachings that will benefit parents if we mind them and if we look at them through that proper lens. And I think this is really an incredible paradigm shift and a brilliant insight of Rav Hirsch because it takes what would otherwise be an inexplicable, shocking, and even painful section of the Torah and gives us another way of looking at it so that we can actually uh, learn and be uplifted and hopefully become better parents and community leaders from learning the messages and lessons of this section. So I want to share with you briefly three specific points that Hirsch makes uh, in the context of Arab Sukkim. Number one, he quotes the Gemara also in Sanhedrin, that tells us that the whole phenomenon of Ben Sora would only exist if this behavior and his reporting about him to the Beitin took place within the first three months after his Bar Mitzvah. In other words, says Rav Hirsch, you see the Torah is identifying that this is a very critical time. At the moment of the first steps that he is taking as a Jewish man, the first quarter of a year after he has turned Bar Mitzvah, it's specifically then when the future will be determined in some sense. At the very moment, says Rav Hirsch, in the German translated into English, which a typical young male is being filled with awakened sensuality, it's dafka then, says the Torah, where we are expected as parents to break through and provide a good guidance and put the young man on the right track. In other words, what Rav Hirsch is saying is that if you have a solid foundation, there can be one step forward, two steps back, and no one's perfect, and we can help the child. However, if this first few months after he's become an adult, reached the age of Jewish maturity, if that is rotten, so when you have a rotten core, when you have a bad foundation, then you can be sure that the future will also be bad. It's only if you have a good foundation that we have a fighting chance, despite the natural challenges and ups and downs of life, that ultimately good will prevail. And of course the message for us is to identify and to realize as parents and as community leaders that in fact... There are stages of a child's life which are more critical than others because they are tone setters. Those early stages after the bar mitzvah, and I would say if we're gleaning this for larger messages, 
It's equally true for a girl as well. Those early stages after the bas mitzvah, those are crucial, crucial times in a child's life. And more broadly, there are other stages, other beginnings, which are tone setters, which we have to be especially sensitive to as parents. Secondly, says Rav Hirsch, the Pasuk says that when the parents come to the Beisdin, they say that the son, their son is Einenu Shomea Bikolenu. He did not listen to our voice. And Rav Hirsch highlights the fact that the Torah did not say that the parents say Einenu Shomea L'Kol Aviv, L'Kol Imo. But rather, not that it's to the mother or the father, but he didn't listen to our voice. And Rav Hirsch sees this as an allusion to the fact that the parents have to speak with a unified, single message to their, parent, to their child. Only then do we have a real good chance of having successful, raising our children successfully. But if the parents are giving mixed messages, they hear one thing from Aviv and one thing from Imo, then one could certainly not say that it's the child's fault to be confused and, God forbid, become religiously astray. Again, there are no guarantees. But says our first, we're learning good practices. And it has to be kolenu. It doesn't mean the parents have to agree on every matter, but they have to figure out a way to present a united front and show one voice to their children. And third, and lastly, Rav Hirsch notes that the Torah describes the behavior of this boy is zolel v'sovei. He is ravenously eating meat and guzzling wine. And this highlights, says Rav Hirsch, that the problem that's considered so irredeemable is the animal-like desire for material pleasures. And especially at this age, which sets the tone for the future, it is this what the Torah thinks is irredeemable. Not necessarily bad hashkafa, not putting on tefillin one day, as bad as something like that would be, but rather the animal-like desire for material pleasures. And says first, we should learn from this as parents, that especially when we have children of an impressionable age, not to make good eating and drinking the important item at home, but rather we have to show passion for religious ideals and not passion for the zolo of the sovea, the material items of life. We learn about a very fascinating and intriguing halacha right in the middle of our parsha, at the beginning of the Ravi Aliyah of Parsha's Kisetse. We read, Lo tetaev adomi ki do not abhor, is the translation, e Edomite, it's referring to someone who converts to Judaism from Edom, Yachichahu, Lo tetaev mitri ki ger artso, and do not abhor a mitri because you were a stranger in his land. And as Chazal explained, this Pasuk alluded to and explained by Rashi, this is referring to someone who converts from either of these nations, and unlike a general convert from any other non-Jewish Gentile nation, who once they convert sincerely as a Ger Tzedek, is fully integrated into the Jewish people and can pretty much marry anyone he or she wants, however, if you convert from one of these two nations, there is some slight hesitation, some lingering uh, problems because of their past uh, enemy relationship they had with the Jewish people, and therefore for the first three generations, they have to marry within each other, they cannot fully integrate with the rest of the Jewish people, and only the product of the third generation can then eventually fully integrate into the Jewish people. On the one hand, there is that resistance, it's up to three generations, Dor Shlishi, as the next Pasuk tells us. On the other hand, this is significantly contrasted with what we read just a few psukim earlier, where we are told, that even someone who tried to convert from Amon and Moab can never, ever, even after 10 generations, can never, ever fully integrate and marry into the Jewish people. And this intriguing combination of halachos, on the one hand, we do hold back for a few generations, on the other hand, we... Um, are not nearly as 
harsh with them as we would be for a convert from Ammon and Moab, obviously needs to be understood. And there are a number of midrashim that try to explain this fascinating halachic phenomenon. And I think there are actually two significant lessons that we can learn from the various midrashic ideas. The first point, which really is just to set the table for the two main ideas, is that in the Medrash Rabbah, on our parsha, the Medrash sees in the compromise and the mercy that we show towards the Mitzri convert how important shalom is, making peace even with past enemies. Come see, says the Medrash, kochel shal shalom, how important shalom is. Because unlike a human being who, if wronged, often forever holds a grudge, but a Baruch is not that way. Even though the Egyptians did terrible things to the Jewish people, nevertheless, the Torah says, lo Mitzri, Hashem's mercy and willingness to eventually allow the Mitzri to fully integrate into the Jewish people is based, said the Medrash, on the principle of Radfu Achar Shalom, which shows be pursuing peace, and therefore Hashem, so to speak, compromises on the previous harm that was done to his beloved Jewish people, and eventually allows even someone from such a hated nation as the Mitzrim to integrate into the Jewish people. This is a very beautiful idea, but it certainly does not sufficient, because it does not fully explain why them and not other enemies. If Koko Shel Shalom is so important, then that should be for the Ammoni and Moavi as well. How come they are totally banished, and yet we do seem to make an allowance for the Mitzri and the Adomi? So for this, we need to turn to two different comments mentioned by the Sifrei. Each one of them, I think, is important and valuable, and we can learn, I think, significant lessons from each of the two comments of the Sifrei. One, which is actually paraphrased by Rashi, and teaches us a very interesting and important lesson. And that is that you see from this contrast between the Mitzri, for example, on the one hand, and Moavi, and um, on the other hand, is that there's a significant difference between someone who tries to kill you, as bad as that is, and someone who tries to get you to sin and rebel against Hashem. After all, when it comes to the Mitzri and Edomi, they tried to kill us, Edom came out to war against us, the Mitzrayim, of course, drown the Jewish babies. And as bad as that is, after three generations, we allow full reconciliation. However, when it comes to Ammon and Moab, they tried to get us to sin. They hatched that plan with the beautiful temptresses who got us to do Gilearias as a way of getting us to do Avodah Zarah, caused a terrible plague. Says the Medrash, you see from the fact that we have no mercy and no interest whatsoever in ever reconciling with people from that nation, we learn from this, that causing someone to sin is even worse than killing them in a manner. After all, if you kill somebody, God forbid, you only take them out of this world, but at least they have their eternal reward in Olam Haba. But however, if you cause someone to sin, you cause them to lose this world and eternity by having them live a sinful life, they'll be punished forever and ever. And this, of course, highlights in an incredibly powerful way how important it is to have the proper spiritual influence on the people around us. If, God forbid, we would have a negative spiritual influence on some level, that's like Ammon and Moab, and Godel HaMachtiyo, if you cause someone to sin on some level, it's even worse than killing them, Rahman al-Tzlan. How terrible is that? We should all give us pause. Of course, it also tells us on the flip side that to the extent that we can influence people positively in a spiritual direction, how incredible is that? On some level, it's even greater than giving them physical life. That's the first important lesson from the Medrash. However, the Medrash has a second opinion, which is also very, very interesting and very, very important with good Musar for us as well. And that is, the Medrash focuses on specifically the Pasuk's reference, the fact that the mercy that we show to the Egyptian is because Ger HaYisa Ba'artso, 
seems like it's a hakaras hatov because they housed us in Egypt for those 200 plus years. However, the Medrash asks the obvious question. They didn't house us in Mitzrayim for all those years out of the goodness of their heart. They didn't do it idealistically, selflessly, altruistically. They did it because they were getting benefit of slave labor. They only did it for selfish reasons so they could get the free slave labor. And for that, the Torah is rewarding them. Why should we reward them if they did it for selfish reasons? Says the matter you see from here, Akava Chomer. You see from here that if someone is going to get reward even when they had selfish motivations, should we have a karasatov, the people who do things for the right reasons and for selfless motivations. And I think this is a very important lesson. Of course, it's better when someone does a favor for selfless reasons. However, ultimately what the Medrash is teaching us is that what they do for you is more important than why. Don't get so caught, hung up and caught up on the why. If someone does you a favor and helps you, you have to have a kar satov, like we have for the Egyptians, even if they had selfish motivations. Of course it's better to be selfless, but no matter what, hakar satov. In addition to the more well-known kitetse that comes at the outset of our parsha where our Parsha get its, gets its name from, in the middle of the Parsha, tor- towards the beginning of the Ravi Eliyah, we have yet another mention of Kitetse, of going out to battle. And here the Torah tells us in Parach of Gimel, Pasuk Yud, Kitetse machane olevecha, when your encampment, when the Jewish camp, the Jewish soldiers go out to war against an enemy, we are commanded to guard against anything evil or impure. And the Pesukim go on, to tell us how it is imperative that the Jewish army guard its camp and its encampment from anything impure, immodest, or unsanua, because, as the section concludes in Pasuk Tezvav, because God, the Spirit of Hashem, is walking through, is present in your encampment. He's there to protect you, so you should win the battle. And therefore, your encampment has to be holy. We don't want Hashem to see anything impure or immodest, and then He would turn away from you. The Sfasemes, in a very beautiful and penetrating piece analyzing this section, starts with the assumption, which is mentioned by many thinkers, not only Hasidish thinkers, but others as well, that this section is actually to be understood on a deeper metaphoric level referring not just to the actual military battle and the halachos for a Jewish army, which undoubtedly is the pshat of the sukkim, but on a deeper metaphoric level, it's referring to the milchemes hayetzer, the battle that each one of us has to undergo with, our own, with ourselves, the battle that goes on inside each and every one of us as we battle against our more base desires, our yetzerhara, our urges to hopefully overcome those and be able to stay loyal to the dictates and values of the Torah to live a holy and modest life. So thus understood, the Sasemis asks a number of sensitive questions based on nuances in the Torah text. For example, in the beginning it said that we have to guard the camp, but the word that's used is v'nishmarta, which as the Sasemis noticed is actually nifal, it's a passive, a reflexive form. L'chore, it should have said v'shamarta, you should guard. Furthermore, at the end of the section, it talks about Hashem being mitalech bekerb machanecha, walking through your camp, so to speak, the Spirit of God. But that's also nifal. It really should have said mehalech. Again, it's figurative no matter what. It's talking about Hashem. But the more proper form would have been mehalech. 
Furthermore, at the end of the section, it says, Lo yira which focuses on not seeing anything impure in the camp. But really asks us, Vasemus, it should have said, Lo yira it shouldn't exist in the camp, it shouldn't be in the camp. After all, the real prohibition is not seeing, but having anything impure at all, no matter who sees it. Just being in the camp is the problem. So why focus on yira? So, in light of these questions, Vasemus gives the following insight. And he starts with the following assumption, which everything flows from this. Says Vasemus, the very act of a person going to war, of fighting, not giving up, not resting on his laurels, not just being reactive, but actually going out there and fighting, that very act itself gives a person strength. When you decide to fight for something, you summon all of your strengths, as opposed to if you just respond passively, reactively, says Svasemes, that creates weakness. It's not just that you fight to preserve your strength, the very act of fighting creates even more strength. It's a catalyst. Therefore, the Pasuk starts with kiteitse, when you go out to war. You don't just wait for the war to come to you. You take it to the war, to the enemy. You're aggressive. Don't just rest. Don't wait for the Yetzir Hara in this metaphoric understanding. Don't wait for the evil inclination to attack you, to try to trip you up. Rather, you should be on the attack. And by doing this, by being aggressive, by being intensive, and not just being passive, Mamela, you'll draw on wellsprings of strength you may not even know you possessed. It's not just that you'll have the strength if you are tempted by being aggressive and preemptive, you'll actually create even more strength with which to do battle against the Yetzirah. And therefore, says the Sasemis, that's why the Pasuk says, Vit which we asked, it seems to be um, in the wrong form. It should have said, But says the Sasemis, no, that's the idea. By saying, it is an allusion to the fact that by going out to do battle, Mamela, that itself creates the result of Shmira, Vinishmarta, because by the very act of going out to battle, that will create the reality of Shmira, because as we said, the act of being aggressive and preemptive and fighting the battle, instead of waiting the battle to come to you, that creates even more strength and kohos. Furthermore, when the Pasuk talks about who goes to war, the machaneh, the camp goes to war. That's kind of a weird phraseology. Uh, Sasemis explains because what's being alluded to in this particular context is that when you go out to war, you can't do it alone. Every division of the military, every, every part of the different types of soldiers, every weapon at your disposal has to be used. So too, he says, when it comes to the spiritual war, a person must summon all of his limbs, not just part. Must summon every aspect of your personality, not just part. You can't serve Hashem with just some of your limbs or some aspect of your personality of your life, but not others. In fact, everything has to go into your Avodah Hashem, in your Yetzer. If you realize that everything depends on this battle, your spiritual life, your eternity, depends on your success in winning the Mechamas Yetzer, then you'll leave nothing to chance. You'll summon every weapon at your disposal. And if a person does that, then that will, as we said, stimulate and arouse the kochos that you may not even have known you had, the inner spiritual spark which resides inside each and every one of us, as the section ends, when it talks about Hashem's spirit being in the camp, means inside each and every one of us, by having this aggressive posture and fighting the Mechamas Yetzer, that will make the spirit of Hashem, it will reside, it will be stimulated inside each and every one of us. And the Pasuk concludes very beautifully, 
Lo And we asked, why is the focus on Yireh, not seeing? But it says this Vasemes because this is, so to speak, the cherry on top. If you really do summon all of your efforts, put all of your chiyas into this effort of fighting the Melchamas Yetzer until your Avodah Hashem, then you will be successful not only in avoiding sin and living a good life, but says this Vasemes will also be Zohar to even remove temptation completely. In a certain sense, it will be out of sight and therefore spiritually out of mind. These psukim therefore prescribe and describe a successful strategy for living an ideal religious life. The institution of marriage is obviously a bedrock of Jewish society. However, it's not clear whether it's a mitzvah in and of itself or not. The debate around this issue revolves or starts with a pasuk in our parsha where we read in the Chamish Aliyah, in the beginning of Parach Havdalid, Ki yikach ish isha ubala. When a man will take a woman and be intimate with her, and this is understood by Chazal and the Gemara and Kiddushin as a kicha, as a taking in the sense of marrying. When a man marries a woman, and this Pasuk is used as part of a complex derivation to serve as the source that when we get married, when we perform the act of Kiddushin, one of the ways, and of course it's the commonly practiced way, is for the man to give the woman something of value. We all give a ring, that's the universal practice, but really it's referred to as kasif. In theory it could be other forms of money or something of monetary value. And that all goes back to the Pasuk in our Parsha. However, there is a major debate, as I mentioned, whether this is just an institution that is recognized by halacha, maybe even encouraged, or is it actually a mitzvah? And this is a significant debate, which actually you find different impressions of in different Gemaras. For example, in the opening Mishnah of the first parak of Masechus Kiddushin Adaf Beis Aleph, it just describes the process of Kiddushin and focuses on its legal significance and consequence, the fact that there's a kinyan involved when a man marries a woman. No reference to anything more elevated, sublime, and certainly not to a mitzvah. On the other hand, the Mishnah and the opening of the second parak of Kiddushin, Andaf Mem Aleph, specifically speaks about how a man can get married, a woman can get married. Each case, the husband or wife could be at their own wedding. However, in a very surprising and not necessarily recommended twist, the Mishnah says that the man and the woman don't have to be at their own wedding. In theory, either of them or both of them, as shocking as that would be, could send an agent, could send a shaliach. And in the Gemara's description of the presentation of this din and the fact that the way the Mishnah describes it, the Gemara introduces the term of mitzvah bo yoser mi That even though it's possible to send a shaliach, an agent, but it's better for the chassan to come himself, it's better for the kala to come herself. Uh, this isn't just obvious as a good recipe for a uh, happy marriage, but even from a halachic perspective, we have the principle of whenever you have a mitzvah, even that can be done al shliach by an agent, for example, I can have someone else give tzedakah to the poor person on my behalf. If I give that person the money and I say, please give this ani the tzedakah, I get the mitzvah because the intermediary just acting on my behalf. Nevertheless, mitzvah bo yosri b'shluchos better do the mitzvah myself. What emerges from this, certainly the simple understanding of this Gemara, is that it's referring to Kiddushin as a mitzvah. 
It's a mitzvah which is then subject to the rule of better to do the mitzvah yourself than to give it to a shliach. But the entire premise of this second Mishnah here on Daf Mem Aleph is that Kedushin is a mitzvah. Unlike the first Mishnah, which we saw on Daf Beis, which doesn't indicate it's a mitzvah at all. So there seem to be contradictory impressions in the Mishnah. And this ambiguity, or even contradiction, in the Mishnahic text in the Chazal, give rise to a major Machlokes Rishonim. There are some Rishonim, most prominently the Rosh, who says, in fact, there is no mitzvah to get married. No mitzvah whatsoever. The only mitzvah is to have children. Pruravu is a mitzvah. But getting married itself is not a mitzvah. After all, the Pasuk in our parsha says, Ki yikach ish isha. And ki here means when. Says the Rosh, that's descriptive. When man marries a woman, this is how you do it with kasef, etc., etc. But that doesn't mean you have to do it when you do it. The mitzvah is actually, though, having children. That's the opinion of the Rosh. Others, such as Meiri, the son of the Rambam, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, they say that it's a start of a mitzvah, a partial mitzvah. Rather, it's a two-piece two process, two-part process, starting with the Kiddushin and ending with the Chuppah or the Nisuin. So it's a partial mitzvah. However, the most full-throated approach uh, is that a number of Rishonim seem to say that unquestionably Kiddushin is a mitzvah in and of itself. The Rambam has a number of formulations, which are somewhat uh, complex and in subtle ways perhaps even inconsistent, but it seems clear that the Rambam holds it's a mitzvah, both in Mishnah Torah and he counts it as a mitzvah in the Sefer HaMitzvos. And even though he has this funny way of putting it in some places, but what seems to be the implication is that according to the Rambam, while there is a mitzvah, but there's, it's a special kind of a mitzvah where the focus is on the process. It's a formal process, as we saw from that opening mission. There's a kinyan, formality, witnesses, the rabbi, everyone's there, a minyan. And the formality consecrates and uplifts what could have been, and the Rambam uh, emphasizes historically pre-Matan Torah was, something that was not just informal and intimate, but sometimes perhaps even coarse and base. And the Torah, by creating the whole concept called Kiddushin, specifically formalized the process, which, according to the Ramam, is consecrating and uplifting it. Be that as it may, we have a major machlokes, whether Kiddushin is a mitzvah or not. And one significant uh, practical ramification of this machlokes is how to understand the bracha that is said under the chuppah. It is tradition for the rabbi to make the bracha before the Kiddushin, not only a bar pre'agafen, but a bracha on the Kiddushin. And even though really it seems like that should be that something that the chassan does, uh, but nevertheless that is the custom that the rabbi does it. But what kind of, when do you make this bracha? The Rambam says it must be before the Kiddushin, and if you didn't do it, it's too late, you can't even do it. Whereas others, such as the Rosh, say no, Dafka do it afterwards. Now, obviously, our practice is to do it before, unlike the Rambam. But what is this machlokis about? So it's clear, the Rambam says it's a mitzvah. And therefore, just like all mitzvahs, we make the bracha before we do the mitzvah. Says the Rosh, no, I don't hold it's a mitzvah at all. And therefore, the bracha is not a bracha on a mitzvah, because there's no mitzvah. Rather, it's a bracha praising the institution of marriage. And therefore, it can be after the fact.